Lord, we thank you that you are our living hope. That when we're down and we're looking for hope, something to give us light, that we find you shining gloriously above the heavens. So God, this morning we come to your word and we pray there be words of hope spoken over us, words of life that will restore our broken hearts, words of hope that guide us to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So did you know that um, giraffes give birth standing up? It's true, and it is remarkable. You see, when a calf enters the world, it falls six feet headlong into the dirt. I think that's why they have those little lumps on their head right there. You see this little guy? Take a look at him. (laughs) He's like, what just happened? And the others are like, Welcome to the family. Mama gives him a few licks to get him clean, and he's ready to take his first steps out into the world. You know, a lot of animals are born ready for survival right when they appear. I mean, think and picture baby sea turtles as they're just hatched and they scamper their way off into the ocean, right? Or ducklings right after they're born, and they jump into the water and they follow after their mama. Baby rabbits, they hardly even know their moms because when their moms give birth, then all of a sudden they take off. It's like drop and hop and off they go. And the mom of a rabbit actually just barely comes a little time during the day just to feed her litter and then off she disappears. And it's only a few weeks before the mama rabbit starts coming around and then the babies are left on their own. You know, it's a very hair-raising experience for these little ones. It's like she doesn't care at all. Now, human babies, on the other hand, a whole different story. We are born completely dependent and vulnerable from the very start. I mean, think about it. It takes a full two months before a baby can even lift its own head. It takes four months before it can roll over, six months before it can sit up, nine months before it can stand, and a full year before a baby can even walk. It takes a full other year until it's able to feed itself, and then another 17 years before it leaves the home, (laughs) if you're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, we're all born incredibly vulnerable. And you know what? It's not so bad because it actually serves us pretty well. You know, as little ones, what we do is we're able to share our feelings. We don't hide You know, it just comes right out of our mouth. A a little baby, you don't have to guess when a baby is hungry, right? It will let you know. And your little girl, I'll tell you, if she's scared, she'll say, Mommy, I'm afraid. And she'll grab your hand for comfort. It's true. If you ask a little one if they're sick, they'll say, "Uh uh-huh. If you ask them if they need to throw up, they'll say, okay. And they'll throw up all over you. As we grow up, isn't it true that we start to lose our vulnerability? It starts to disappear. You know, we have these awkward moments, you know, like what a a wife asks her husband. She'll say, honey, do I look fat in this dress? A man cannot answer that question. It's impossible. But a little kid, they'll tell you exactly how you look. 
I'm telling you, when my daughter Brooke was a little bug, just a little one, she came up to me and she patted my belly and she said, Daddy, your belly's just like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> oh, man, compare me to a fat little chubby bear that eats all the time, gets stuck in a rabbit hole. Well, I'll tell you what, kid, you ever heard of the giraffe? I'll be dropping you right down at work and you can start paying for your own pull-ups. We don't say that, though, do we? We're like, oh, honey, you're so funny. <laughs> Still, sometimes, honestly, that sweet honesty, the clear communication, and knowing where we stand, it's refreshing. It's important. It's actually very helpful. Because as we get older, we start to hide from one another. Isn't it true? You know, like you run across somebody you haven't seen in a while, and you say, hey, good to see you. How's it going? And they're like, what do they say? fine, great, whatever. And you say, oh, and how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, your life could be like a country music song. You know, you lost your job, you lost your girl, you ran over your dog, you know, but you still say, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We get really, really good at protecting ourselves, putting up walls, shields. We want to be strong. We don't ever want to be weak or vulnerable. We armor up we guard our hearts. But at our very core, you see, when we do this, we're unknown, isolated, and we feel unloved. So today we're going to talk about vulnerability. And it's scary. <laughs> I mean, it really is scary. When Ron told me, guess what, Mark, you get to talk about vulnerability. I felt very vulnerable. <laughs> so I started thinking, what am I going to talk about? And I started thinking of things I thought, uh, no, I'm not going to talk about that. And I thought of something else. I, no, I can't go there. <laughs> so this ping pong match was going on in my head. So I decided I'm just going to go to the Bible. I'm going to look up the word vulnerable. And you know what? It's not in there. <laughs> so this will be a really short sermon. We're all going to go home and have lunch. <laughs> but then I kept looking and searching. And you know what? I found a whole bunch of places where people were very vulnerable, where they reached out for God and said, I just can't do this on my own, and I need your help. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus calls us all to be like little children, and that the weak are strong, and that we're to rely on him and not ourselves. You see, God calls us out into vulnerability. And so let's talk about learning to be vulnerable together. I'm not sure we'll like it, but I think it's going to be good for us. It's kind of like a Brussels sprout sermon. <laughs> Our first point is this, to be transparent with one another. Now, when sin entered the world for the first thing it did is it started to poison our relationships and our connections with one another. Isn't that true? See, with Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid from God. They covered themselves. They blamed one another. They even blamed God. But see, what vulnerability does is it calls us out of the bushes, calls us out to be seen. Yes, seen in all of our shame and our guilt and our brokenness. You see, transparency is the idea that we can see through one another without these walls, these barriers, these things that we use to protect ourselves. And the transparent life is truly a life of freedom and joy. Galatians 6.2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So what is the law of Christ? Jesus said to love one another. And we love one another when we bear one another's burdens. But before we can bear our burdens, we have to share our burdens. That means that we need to share our hurts, our needs, our struggles, the things that keep us up at night. And when we share our burdens, then we can bear them and support one another. But it all starts with being vulnerable. Now, the enemy of vulnerability is shame. You see, if there's areas in our life that we kind of lock out, we closet up, we harbor inside where it just rots inside us, then we're really held captive to the belief that, you know what? If you really knew me, everything about me, you wouldn't want to be near me. You would reject me. You see, shame, it's a very powerful force. It's a force that makes us feel unlovable. But shame's power comes from secrecy. And when we're able to let that secret out, shame and the burden begins to lighten. Being vulnerable is kind of putting our heart on the table. But see, when we do that, if we are received with grace and understanding and acceptance, it does something to us. It heals us. It makes us understand that we're known, fully known, and then we can be fully loved. You see, it builds bridges. It creates bonds. And it forms life-giving connections. And a great example of this comes from the book of Ruth. You see, in the book of Ruth, we find the story of a woman named Naomi. And she has a husband and she has two sons who are married to Moabite women, foreign women. Well, see, Naomi's husband, he dies, unfortunately. And then all of a sudden, her sons die. It's a horrible situation. And so we enter this scene where Naomi is speaking to her daughters-in-law in this brokenness, in this hurt, in this pain. And she's encouraging them just to leave her and go back to their people, go back to their gods. And she's struggling. And she says this in Ruth 1, 12 and 13. No, my daughters. Return to your parents' homes, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sins, then what? I mean, would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry anyone else? No, of course not, my daughters. These things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. That's pretty raw, right? Incredibly raw. Naomi is hurting, and she even feels like God is against her. You know, she probably couldn't have said that. She could have been like me and just kind of hide and sulk and withdraw. But instead, she bears her pain. She shares what's going on in her. And the result is that one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, commits to stay with her. She decides not to go back to her family, not to go back to her gods, but she's going to commit herself to walking through this with Naomi. And once she does that, God does something incredible. God begins a healing work in both of those women, and he begins to pave a whole new future. You see, Ruth goes on to find a new husband named Boaz. And Naomi, who as an older single woman in that culture who would have really struggled and been destitute, she's provided for. 
And this friendship she has with Ruth influences Ruth to claim the God, Yahweh, to be her own God. And it's interesting how God uses that to create a whole new redemption story where a foreigner becomes part of God's family. And not only that, but Ruth actually is included in Jesus' family tree. It's amazing. And it all began with vulnerability, which turned into a bond which ended up as a blessing. Dr. Brene Brown says this in her book, Daring Greatly. Vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. And if you've never heard of Brene Brown, you really need to watch her TED Talk online about vulnerability. It's amazing. You see, it's important that we take the time to build safe strong relationships with safe people so that we can open the windows of our soul and be able to release the freedom of transparency and vulnerability. Next point. You ready? <laughs> Confess to one another. Now, we live kind of in this no blame, no shame type of culture, you know, which all sounds good, but it really doesn't help us much when it comes to our struggles with sin. You know, sin, it kills, it destroys, it poisons everything around us. And we just can't afford to cozy up to sin. You know, trying to cozy up to sin is like trying to snuggle with a Burmese python. Feels real warm and cozy in the beginning, and then you find your life getting strangled right out of you. Sin grows like mold in dark, hidden places. And God uses confession as a way to cleanse our heart and to set us free. And as much as we kind of believe and think that we can tackle sin on our own, you know, just grab it and wrestle it to the ground, it's impossible. I mean, haven't you found that to be true? We need God to help us with sin, and we need one another. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So we're taking this whole thing to a whole different level, right? I mean, first we talk about bearing one another's burdens, and now we're getting really bare with one another, confessing sin. I mean, talk about being vulnerable. But here's the deal. If we're really honest, right, with one another, we all struggle. We're all broken. We all have areas of our life that are out of control, and we need help. We are drawn to sin like moths to a lantern, and when we get close to sin, it burns us just like the moths on the lantern. But if we honestly could just be candid with one another about what tempts us, about what lures us, what wrecks us, then sin will have less power over us. And when we admit our sin, when we fall, come forward with it and allow a friend to be used by God to walk with us, to redirect us, to restore us, it honestly, it could save our marriage. It could save our job. It could save our life. Because it's these little compromises, you know, where we just, you know could just do this. It's not going to hurt anybody. And those little compromises get away to justified actions where, well, you know, I could justify this. 
And then those eventually turn into intentional plans. And each step we take leads us further and further and further from God. And before we know it, we start to feel distant from him. And then after a while, we find ourselves wondering if God is even there at all. You see, sin pulls us away from God. It hardens our heart. It draws us away. And we follow that path until it takes us to ruin. David, in the Bible, David was a young man who loved God with all his heart, all his strength. He was committed to God, committed to his ways, and the Lord used him to slay a giant, to lead a nation, to influence a generation. David was a man of God, but David, you see, he struggled with lust, and this was an area of his life that was unchecked in his heart. So one day, David, David becomes king. He's up in his palace, and he's looking out over his kingdom. And there he spies on a roof a young woman taking a bath. Bathsheba. What a perfect name for a woman taking a bath on her roof. <laughs> David calls his servants and asks them to bring, him, to bring her to him. And he sleeps with Bathsheba. And sure enough, she gets pregnant. And does David own it? Does he admit his sin? No. He covers it up. He puts together a plot in secrecy to have Bathsheba's husband, who's one of his committed warriors, put to the front lines and killed in battle. And he thinks his secret is safe. Everything seems to be going as planned. And, but really, God knows all about this. And God sends a man, Nathan, a prophet, to confront David about his sin. And as this happens, honestly, David as the king could have very well just had Nathan killed and continued the cover-up. But this is what David did and said. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. David confessed. He finally and fully owned it. And that sin had devastating consequences, not only on him, but also on his family. But you know what? What really matters is that David got his heart right with God. And that's why we know David, this flawed human being, as being a man after God's own heart. But think about it. Really think about it. What if David, before he saw Bathsheba, would have confessed this issue that he had with lust to somebody that he could trust? Or maybe what if right after he saw Bathsheba, he could go to that person and confess that sin? What would have happened then? Maybe the two sons that he lost wouldn't have died. You see, confession, just as we experienced a few moments ago, it is a powerful tool that God uses to cleanse us, to purify us. It's a means of grace. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And when we sin, hurt, dishonor others, confession helps, doesn't it, to restore those connections again. You know, sometimes we are just kind of throw a flippant, I'm sorry. 
And we may be sorry, but even a better way is to say right at it, I was wrong. This is what I did. I realized that I really hurt you. Will you please forgive me? That demonstrates a heart of confession, a sincere heart that takes responsibility, that owns what we've done and want to make it right. That's life-giving. You know, confession really does. It makes us incredibly vulnerable. But really, by being vulnerable, that begins to destroy the pride and self-righteousness that led us into sin in the first place, doesn't it? Our heart is softened then before God and before others. Next point, submit to one another. <laughs> Wait, submit? That old-fashioned dirty word. Yes, submit. We need to submit to one another. You know, one of the things that I really love about my dog, yeah, I'm going to talk about my dog, <laughs> is that she is submissive. Our dog, Sammy, is a Yorkshire Terrier. Now, th something you need to know about Terriers, and you probably already know this if you have one, is that Terriers have a reputation, right? They kind of think that they're bigger and badder than they really are. In fact, maybe you've seen this picture before right here. Look at this. <laughs> but here's the deal about my dog, Sammy. You know, she's no Wookiee. And if you talk to her firmly or if she encounters a bigger dog or maybe a little child is chasing after her, she'll put her ears back, she'll roll on her back and expose her little tummy. Now, she's not a wimp, honestly, but she is submissive. And it's beautiful to me. You know, my dog growing up as a little kid, we also had a Yorkshire Terrier. Its name was Moses because Moses was always putting out the burning bush. But Moses did not live up to his name. He was not a humble dog. Moses was pretty full of himself. You know, if you ever needed to give Moses a bath, you'd say, bath time, he'd run under the bed. You'd try to get him out, he'd growl at you. You leave the door open, he'd run across the street and go eat the neighbor's cat food. You try to bring him back, he'd just run further away. He was headstrong, he always wanted his own way. He was a lot like me. <laughs> and that's why I admire my dog Sammy so much. I do. Here's a picture of Sammy. Look at her. <laughs> she willingly gives up her will for others, and she does it easily. And I really admire her for that. She's a better Christian than I am. <laughs> so really cute, Mark. But what does this have to do with us, you say? But isn't it true that most of our bumps our bruises, our conflicts come from time when we try to impose our own will over others. We try to assert ourselves. We try to control and influence and overshadow people. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. The word was a military term which meant to rank other under others. And when we follow God's spirit in relationship, we rank ourselves under others. We relinquish our rights to the other person. You know, from Jesus' earliest childhood, he always submitted himself to the Father's will. He told his disciples, he said, I'm here to do the will of the Father and not my own will. 
when we submit ourselves to others, what it does is it places us in a position of vulnerability and incredible trust. I think this is one of the biggest challenges of our entire life because it's the path of sacrifice. It's the path of Jesus, which is why, although it's incredibly difficult, this is a path that we must take. I think a great example of submission is actually came about in the life of Peter when he met the Roman centurion named Cornelius. So Peter, now he's a very devoted Jewish man. And as a Jewish man, the Jews despised Gentiles, non-Jews. They were considered to be unclean. Now, not only was Cornelius a Gentile, but he was also a Roman centurion. Remember the guys who crucified Jesus on the cross? Roman centurions. And yes, he was a Roman centurion. The Romans were the ones who overshadowed, overruled, and oppressed the Jewish people. So one day Peter is at a friend's house and all of a sudden he has this vision. And in this vision, there's all this unclean non-Jewish food that descends from heaven, comes before him on a big sheet, and there's a voice that says, Peter, go and eat. And Peter says, I can't eat that. That's unclean. And the voice from heaven, God says, do not declare unclean what God has called clean. Peter's puzzled by this. The vision happens three times. Everything for Peter happens three times. And then the messenger shows up at the door. And these messengers tell Peter that a Roman centurion wants to see him. Last time Peter saw a Roman centurion, they were nailing his savior Jesus to a cross. So here's Peter. And he decides to follow. And he heads over to Cornelius' house. And this Roman centurion tells him that God had also given him a vision that Peter, this man Peter, was going to share something with him. And Peter's feeling very vulnerable. What happened to Jesus? So he decides he's going to submit himself to Cornelius and share with his enemy about Jesus Christ. And then invite his enemy to be his brother in Christ. And Cornelius and his whole family respond. And Peter's amazed. And he says this in Acts 10, 34 to 36. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel. There is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all. And this is the way of Jesus. Not that we demand our own rights and way, but put the interests of others first. The second chapter of Philippians tells us that we are to be like have the mindset of Jesus who made himself a servant and came to serve and love others before himself. Our very last point is this. We restore one another. Restore one another. Now, the idea of restoring one another is about getting in each other's business. <laughs> None of us want to do that. We don't want to be that person. The one who steps in, confronts, corrects, or calls somebody out. Boy, there is nothing in that for us at all. And it is incredibly risky. But God calls us together as family. And he says that there are times that we need to step in and speak up, but we're to do so with incredible humility, 
vulnerability, and with a motive of love and restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. See, like it or not, God kind of hauls us into accountability for one another. You know, culture tells us, mind your own business. But haven't we learned from life that whatever we do, our actions not only affect us, but everyone else around us. And as the family of God, we are so deeply connected more than we know or think, we honestly need to be involved in the health, vitality, and restoration of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's tough, <laughs> right? I mean, most people, when they're drifting away, they do not want to hear from you. But there are times when we really need to deliver difficult and unwanted news. It's kind of like the guy who ran into the vet's office with his dog in his arms. And the vet took him back to the examination room and he had him put his dog on the table and he looked at him for a while and he shook his head. He said, I'm so sorry, but your dog is dead. And the man said, he wasn't willing to accept it. He says, I really want a second opinion. So the vet went into the back and he brought out a cat. And he put the cat on the table next to the dog's body and the cat sniffed up, nudged from head to tail, looked at it, meowed at the vet, said, I'm sorry, the cat also thinks your dog is dead. <laughs> but the man would not receive the news. So the vet went back again into the back room and he brought out a black Labrador. And he set the dog on the table and the black lab kind of nudged, went from the dog's tail to his nose, sniffed him, nudged him, looked at the vet and barked. The vet said, I'm sorry. The dog also thinks that your dog is dead. Well, the man finally was willing to accept the news that his poor pet had passed away, and he thanked the vet, and he said, okay, so how much do I owe you? And the vet told him, well, $650. $650? To tell me a dog is dead? And the vet said, yeah, I only charge you $50, but the extra $600 is for the CAT scan and the lab tests. Sometimes we have to deliver tough news to people. It really takes a very committed friend to be willing to step in when others have walked out and gone astray. But love can lead us. Love leads us, and we can do this because this is what Jesus does for us. And aren't we glad that Jesus came after us when we were astray? You know, Peter was one of Jesus' most devoted disciples. He pledged himself to Jesus. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, we see Peter fall apart. And Peter lied. He denied. And he abandoned Jesus. And after the crucifixion, Peter's feeling worthless, hopeless. I mean, at one point, Jesus had told him he was going to be the key to opening God's kingdom. And that dream was gone. And Peter just kind of climbs into his old fishing boat. And he's drawing in his empty nets with his raw hands. And then suddenly on the seashore, he sees somebody and he's calling out to him and he's saying something. And he says, 
How's the fishing going? And Peter says, not so great. And the man says, put your nets on the other side. So Peter does. And sure enough, all these fish start jumping into the net. It's full of nets. It's starting to make the boat tilt. It's so full. And it dawns on Peter, that's Jesus. And Peter jumps out of the boat. He swims to shore. And there Jesus is with a warm fire to warm him and fresh fish to eat. But Peter, he feels incredibly hesitant with Jesus for all the ways that he's failed him. And Jesus senses this and says this to him in John 21, 15 to 17. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, Simon John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you and take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, Jesus said, then feed my sheep. You see, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus gave Peter three times to reaffirm his commitment and love for him. He assured Peter of his value and his purpose, and he restored Peter back to himself. Now, soon after this, Peter became the man that Jesus called him to be. Peter gave a sermon, and he began the early church. He became the head of that early church. And not only that, but God used Peter in a mighty way to advance his kingdom you see that restoration is risky, but it carries an incredible reward. James 5, 19 to 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. You see, the Lord may bring someone to your mind put it on your heart to lead them back to faith or restore them back from sin. Follow Jesus' lead. Let him guide you with a soft and vulnerable heart. You see, because Jesus gives you the ministry of reconciliation and he is with you. Now, all of the things that we've talked today about vulnerability, they're risky, right? Vulnerable being vulnerable, it seems like being weak, but it really is stuff that's truly for the brave. So I want you to think about it. What if we all began to embrace vulnerability, how that might bring us from shame into wholeness? How might that set us free? How might that set others free? How might it help us live in God's grace? God knows us fully, and he loves us unconditionally, and this is a gift that we can give to one another. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are vulnerable. We don't like to admit it. We, we want to think that we're strong. We've got it together, but ultimately, 
the bridge that led us to you was a point of vulnerability when we admitted that we sin. We admit that we don't have it all together. We admit that we need you. So Lord, help us to not forget that path, that the path of vulnerability leads us to you in every area of our life. God, this is stuff it'd be easy to hear and enjoy, but hard to apply. So I pray that you give us incredible courage to live a vulnerable life and to trust you by faith as to what you might do with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.